The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. This morning, as we continue in the series and as we get into uh, chapter 10, as we have another encounter with the Lord through His Word, it's going to teach us this. This is the theme. This is the, the nail. This is what this, this morning is all about. It's here. God uses the consistent prayers of his ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. Extraordinary is a hard word to spell. I'll give you that. That's why we have it on the screen uh, for you. Extraordinary. God uses the consistent prayers of his ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And he's going to teach us this as an ordinary Joe named Cornelius comes to faith in Christ and is really the tipping point for the gospel advancing to the ends of the earth. Join me in Acts 10 now. I want to read the first eight verses for us to see this story for ourselves. This is Acts 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. <clears throat> About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We'll stop there. We'll continue on with the remainder of the chapter in the little bit here in the message. But this is a fascinating point where we come to in Acts chapter 10. Where we left off last week in chapter 6, people have been martyred. Uh, the apostle Paul has now been saved. He was Saul who was persecuting the church. And God in his kindness revealed himself to Saul on the Damascus road and, and converted his soul to Christ who is now, now Saul who's becoming Paul is going to be responsible for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're in that section as the gospel is advancing from Jerusalem into the areas around it, into Judea and to Samaria, and it is about to be unleashed to the rest of the world. So much so, here, listen to this verse. This is chapter 9, verse 31. This is the description of the church in that day. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, those are regions in, in Israel, they had this, they had peace, and the church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Isn't that a great description of the state of the church in that day? I found myself reading this and studying this and praying that very verse, 931, God, God would you do that here in New Braunfels, in the greater Austin, San Antonio area, in central Texas, the hill country, this region, God, would this be a description of God's people, of the church in our area? 
And so this is, this is the state of the church. And then in chapter 10 here, we get this man named Cornelius who comes on the scene. And the sketch that we get of his life in these first eight verses is one of an investor. Cornelius, the investor. You might be thinking to yourself, huh, an investor? Wait, you just read it for us, Blair. He's a centurion, he's a soldier. What do you mean he's an investor? Well, let me explain it for you, why I say Cornelius, the investor here. Let's look at a little bit of the background. Join me in verse one here. See, Caesarea was a city on the northern coast of Israel. It was uh, the Roman capital of the province of Judea there, and it was a glorious city in that day. It's different, just mind you, than Caesarea Philippi. You might be familiar with that. Matthew 16, it's where Peter confesses Christ. Caesarea Philippi, that's not this. This is Caesarea by the sea. And you can actually go and, and see it even today. You can see the great luxury that is still left even 2,000 years later, that are the ruins that are still there. And Herod the Great, a ruler in those days, he had poured massive amounts of money into making this coastal city a luxurious harbor. It was a magnificent seaport, one commentator said. He, he even went in, get this, wrap your mind around this, 2,000 years ago, he went in and he deepened the harbor so that way more ships could come in. It was very shallow up until Herod came in. I, don't, I can't even fathom how you would do that 2,000 years ago. But he deepened it out so bigger boats could come in and bigger ships could bring in their, their, their goods into this strategic port city. He built breakwaters there as well. But it wasn't just all infrastructure. He built a massive amphitheater. He met, built a massive hippodrome. Anybody know what a hippodrome is? You think they race horses or hippos there? I've heard it a lot, but it's actually a horse racing uh, a stadium. It's like, maybe, maybe hippos, I don't know. But they also built a temple, a temple in honor of Rome and to worship Augustus Caesar. And here's even another thing, it's by the sea, but they built those massive aqueduct systems. You've seen those with the arches running all throughout like the Roman Empire. They built that to bring fresh water into this city. It was a modern marvel of that day. And in order to protect this great city at Caesarea, they had dispatched, the Roman army had dispatched a cohort of soldiers. Do you see that here? He's in verse one, Caesarea, there's a centurion of the Italian cohort. There's some debate over exactly how many soldiers from 100 to 600, but it was likely 100 soldiers per cohort, and they were led by a centurion. And the Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, and so this is a subset of a larger legion, and this centurion would lead this band of soldiers. Put this in your cooker, just as you're thinking about cohorts. In John 18, what the John's account of when Jesus is arrested, remember when Judas comes to betray him? It says that with Judas came a cohort of soldiers. They, they meant business when they were going to arrest Jesus. I mean, it wasn't just like a few, you know, beat cops just coming to like arrest this guy. They were, bring, they were coming loaded for war. Same amount of soldiers protecting a strategic city came to take Jesus. But anyways, a cohort, a lot of soldiers there to protect this massive city led by a centurion. He would have been the captain. And they were known, they have all kinds of reputations of, of being men who are dependable, fierce, unflappable, unafraid, extremely loyal to the mission, not giving up, unafraid in the face of great odds. They were fierce warriors. 
But beyond the description of this ordinary soldier, of his vocation, look at the description of his spiritual life in verse two. Look at this description. Could this be said about you? It's fascinating here. This, is, this verse here, we're gonna look at it, but this is one of the reasons why several years ago I pitched this name Cornelius to my wife to name our kid. <laughs> well, needless to say, I pitched and she didn't swing. Uh, it, uh, it was one of, those, one of those names. But here in verse two, this is why I call him an investor. He was devout. He feared God. One commentator says he realized the bankruptcy of Roman paganism of worshiping Zeus and all the Greco-Roman gods of that day. He realized it was bankrupt, and he had left following these gods, this religion, to following the one true God, not fully converting to Judaism, but a God-fearing Roman, a God-fearing Gentile. And as a result of his fear of God, he was devout. Look Look at this description. He was a man who feared God by himself, No, with all his household. He invested in his family. It likely not just included a a spouse and kids, but servants, these attendants as well. He led them in fearing God. Not only this, but he invested his money. Look at what it says. He gave generously. This is a significant word to be known for that he, he was abundant in how he gave away the resources that God had given him, his, the, the earnings that he made as a soldier, he gave it away to the people. But because he feared God, he also invested his time. Look at this, this final description. He prayed sporadically to God. He prayed when he thought about it to God. Oh, what does it say? He prayed continually. He prayed continually. He had a great responsibility. He was leading soldiers. He was responsible for protecting a city, for a mission, and yet even in all the weightiness of his responsibility, he did not neglect disciplined and dependent times in prayers. Right there in verse 3, we see about the ninth hour of the day. He's praying. That's 3 p.m. He's taken not a smoke break, but a prayer break getting on his knees, praying to the Lord, and here is what, this vision comes in the midst of praying. Maybe you've heard this before, but there are three ways to use our resources, aren't there? You've maybe heard this in regards to your time and in regards to your money. There are three ways to use it. You can waste your time, you can spend your time, or you can invest your time. You can waste your money, you can spend your money, or you can invest your money and how you use the resources that God has given you is what determines your legacy. It determines your reputation as am I someone who wastes it, spends it, or invests it in our family, our money, our time. All of these are resources from the Lord that we are entrusted with. We are entrusted with them to and responsible to use them wisely. We're responsible to invest in these things for Christ for eternal purposes that may not just have immediate rewards. I've been reading this book. I have encouraged you, especially our men, to read this, The Journey to Victorious Praying this month. Anybody in it? Anybody reading it? It's a fantastic story that I want to read to you here. It's a story about the life of a man named George McCluskey. Ever heard of George McCluskey? Probably not. 
Let me read this for you. It says, McCluskey was a man who decided to make a shrewd investment. As he married and started a family, he decided to invest one hour a day in prayer. He was concerned that his kids might follow Christ and establish their own homes where Christ was honored. Anybody want that? Anybody want their kids to follow Christ? Generations, you bet. After a time, he decided to expand his prayers to include not only his children, but their children and the children after them. Every day between 11 a.m. and noon, he would pray for the next three generations. Yes, you heard that right, 11 a.m. and noon. As the years went by, his two daughters committed their lives to Christ and married men who went into full-time ministry. The two couples produced four girls and one boy. Each of the girls married a minister and the boy became a pastor. The first two children born to this generation were both boys. Upon graduation from high school, the two cousins chose the same college and became roommates. During their sophomore year, one of the boys decided to go into ministry as well. The other one didn't. He knew the family history and undoubtedly felt some pressure to continue the family legacy by going into ministry himself. But he chose not to. In a manner of speaking, this young man became the black sheep of the family. He was the first one in four generations not to go into full-time Christian ministry. He decided to pursue his interest in psychology and over the years met with success. After earning his doctorate, he wrote a book to parents that became a bestseller. He then wrote another and another, all bestsellers. Eventually, he started a radio program that is uh, at this time now heard on more than 1,000 stations each day. The black sheep's name? James Dobson. Without a doubt, the most influential and significant leader of the pro-family movement in America. His ministry is the direct result of the prayers of a man who lived four generations prior. There's a man who invested his time, who maybe didn't even see the full impact of the investment. He didn't, he didn't see all the compounding interest that his prayer that he was making as he devoted that one hour every day over the decades, throughout the generations, and even now is still bearing a reward for Christ because one man invested his time in his family, in his prayers, and you can bet with his money. This is, a, this is a story of a man who was an investor. And so how do we invest in these things? How do we not waste the opportunity to disciple those that are closest to us? How do we not waste our money on perishable things? And how do we not waste our time on frivolous things? Well, here's some help for you, some real practical things before we move on. Here's three things. How to disciple your family. You can take notes with these if you want to just listen, but here's, here's three practical tips to get started in investing in your family. The first, lead by example. Lead by example. Get going and get growing. You cannot make investments where yourself are not willing to go. And so lead by example, parents. Whether you're a husband or wife, whether you're married or not, you lead by example, growing in your worship of Christ, growing in your walk with Christ, growing in your work for Christ as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Second, you wanna disciple your family? Make space for your spouse. 
make space for your spouse. And what I mean by is this, guys and gals, the most loving thing that you can do for your spouse is to help cultivate their relationship with the Lord. Ask them, have a conversation. When would you like to meet with the Lord in the morning? then joyfully take all responsibility. If you have kids that need to get out to school, if you have kids that need to get dressed and get, get, a, get, get breakfast and all those things, then joyfully take it so they can have a set amount of time meeting with the Lord. Make space for your spouse to meet with the Lord and celebrate that and ask about it and, 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 and cultivate that discipline in their life. We lead by example. We make space for our spouses, and then finally, discuss the deeds of the Lord. Discuss the deeds of the Lord. You wanna know one of the most easy ways to disciple your children, to, to, to evangelize those that you work with. It's just to talk about the real things that God is doing in your life. You know, we get, anybody here get a little nervous when it's like, oh, I gotta share the gospel, I'm gonna, uh, like I might fumble it, I might not say the right things. Anybody get a little nervous about that? Yeah, so do I. But you know, one of the most unassuming, one of the easiest ways to talk about what God is doing is just talk about the impact that he's having in your own life. The things that you are reading in scripture, the answers to prayer that he is doing in your life, the things that you are witnessing him do in your uh, small group member's life. And that just shows that the word of God is living and active that Christ is still alive, that Christianity, our faith, is not just some dead, dying thing. It is not an archaic belief of the past, but it is real. See, our kids, others, they can see right through the hypocrisy of our life, but if we are just discussing, talking about the deeds of the Lord, this is why Deuteronomy 6 talks about this. This is why Deuteronomy 6 instructs uh, parents that as you're going, Along the way, as you enter in, as you lie down, as you sit down, talk about the Lord. That's why you see throughout the Psalms, they're, they're talking about uh, recounting the deeds of the Lord to our children. Hear this, this is Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. It says, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. All throughout his life, he's talking about God's work in his life. Here's verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. See, that's an aim. That's, that's where we go to as we get older, is to tell the next generation of the goodness and kindness and deeds of the Lord want to disciple your family, you can start here. But how do we, that's, this is where, where he started. He, he, he feared God with all of his household, but he also gave generously. Well, well how do we give generously? Let's, let's talk about this. It, it, giving generously is not necessarily about an amount. To give generously is not necessarily about an amount. 10% is a biblical principle, but I would submit to you that it is not necessarily a command. See, our giving, just as our worship, is not necessarily out of a heart of obligation, a heart of duty, it's a heart of first fruits, and that's why it's worshipful. That's why every Sunday we come and it's a part of our worship service, because it's, it comes out of this heart that I get to give to the Lord, that he in his kindness and mercy has given to me. And I don't wanna just give to the Lord my leftovers, 
I'm not just giving to the Lord uh, uh, what, I, what I have left at the end of the month. No, I am joyfully giving to the Lord what is my best. And when times are tough, the, my giving to the Lord is not the first thing that's cut out of the budget. So our giving to the Lord is joyful. Here's these. So let, let's just talk about how do we give this? What does the scripture teach us? Well, to give generously, we give faithfully. Our giving, how, do, how are we marked by generous giving? It's first through giving faithfully, regularly, consistently, thoughtfully. It's not just a, 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 a second thought, but it's something that we get to do. In Exodus 35, it's a great passage. It's a significant passage, actually. Um, a lot of parallels to the season that we find ourselves in Acts, just in the scope of human history. You know, the, the book of Exodus, the people have just been released. They've just been freed from captivity from Egypt. They are now establishing the tabernacle. God's glory has come. The Ten Commandments have been given. They are building up the tabernacle. And in Exodus 35, verses 4 and 5, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And he goes on to list all kinds of precious, valuable things. So our giving is to be faithful, to be regular, consistent, out of a heart of generosity that we get to participate, that we get to be a part of God's work. How to give generously is you also give sacrificially. Sacrificially. See, our, our giving to the Lord is not just tipping him for the good things, the, the good service that he's given us. For the nice things. Man, Lord, thanks. You answered that prayer. All right, here's a 20. You know, thanks. Like, I'm feeling pretty generous today. No, our giving to the Lord should, should be weighty. We should feel it. There are a hundred other things that we could be spending this on, but, but our giving to the Lord uh, should be felt as we trust the Lord, increasing all the time. No matter even if our income is not increasing, our heart is always to give. Hear this encouragement that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. There was, there was a great and massive need among the believers in Jerusalem. And the believers in Corinth have been so generous, so sacrificial in their giving. Hear this, hear this encouragement. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see that? Their joy partnered with not their overflowing bank accounts, but what does it say? Their extreme poverty has come together to bring about an overflow of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. They were begging. Again, that's a, that's a picture of generous, sacrificial giving. That's a heart that understands the worship of why we give, how to give, generously, how to make investments with our money to the Lord. Now this really stands in contrast back to, back in Acts, doesn't it? Of here's this man Cornelius, but remember in Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira? They were hoarding, they were keeping, they were lying to the Lord, they were putting on a show of that they were being generous, 
And there were some severe consequences for Ananias and Sapphira, wasn't there? Consequence of death. We want to give generously, we give faithfully, sacrificially, and finally cheerfully. Cheerfully. He'll go on in 2 Corinthians 9, and he says this in verse 6, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, we don't give begrudgingly, we don't give skeptically, we don't give tight-fistedly, but we release it to the Lord and His church with great joy and trusting it, and trusting it for the advancement and multiplication of the gospel. See, that's why we give. That's why we give. That's the picture of, of what we see in Cornelius. He, he knew he was a devout man in how he gave away the resources that God had graciously given to him. So that's how to disciple your family. We've, what else we invested in our money, but what's last? How to, how to pray, how to pray continually. And we've been talking about this through this series, and so I just wanna kind of blitz through this. You wanna know how to pray continually? Start your day in prayer, pray throughout the day, and end your day in prayer. Got it? That's how you pray continually. See, when we begin our day in prayer, Psalm 1, verse 2, what does it say? That blessed is the man who meditates on your word, who is with you day and night. And our disciplined prayer with the Lord in the morning. I mean, we're not talking, just like our money is not necessarily about the amount. The, the time is not necessarily the quantity, but it is the quality it is a heart that's saying, Lord, I am gonna be focused on you this morning, at this time, disciplined prayer. And that disciplined prayer fuels my dependent prayer throughout the day. So that way I'm praying biblically saturated, uh, father-directed, Christ-exalting prayers throughout the day. And sometimes I hear this like, well, why do I need to set aside time in the morning and at night in disciplined prayer? I'm praying all the time. Good for you. Let me encourage you in that. Continue to do that. But you want to make those on-the-go, throughout-the-day prayers much more uh, rich, much more, much more honoring to the Lord than spend some time in disciplined prayer. Fill up your tank in that. And throughout the day, those prayers will be much richer as you are on-the-go, trusting the Lord with a dependent prayer life. And then end your day and pray with your spouse. Listen to a, a short devo. Pray for the things that were, uh, that were on your heart that day and the things that you have before. And let me just tell you, spend your last waking thoughts with the Lord and you will sleep much sweeter throughout the night. Give your last thoughts to the Lord. That's how you pray continually. These are the things that described, this, is, this verse two, this described Cornelius. Do they describe you? Are you making eternal investments with your family, your money, your time? Or will those things, your family, money, your time, just end up on the ash heap, spent on temporary toys instead of the eternal joys in Christ Jesus? It's a heavy question. It's a heavy question. And as we, and really as we move on, but before we can go, it would be a tragedy not to really stop here and point out in this, these things. These are admirable qualities in Cornelius, no doubt, right? 
These are admirable qualities in Cornelius, but I cannot move on without also pointing out the fact that this man, at this moment, when this is being described about him, does not know Christ. He fears God, yes, He is devout in how he lives his life, yes, but is he saved? No, not yet, not yet anyways. God in his kindness is about to change that in the remainder of the chapter. God is preparing him, he's moved him out of paganism, he is moving him to where the fear of God is behind him and is motivating his decision making, but there is not faith. All of these things are being done apart from Christ. And beloved, I must appeal to you. It would be a tragedy to trust in anything but Christ to save you. It would be a tragedy to trust in your devotion to prayer. It would be a tragedy to trust in your bank account or how you spend your your time and your resources. It would be a tragedy to trust in your baptism to save you. It would be a tragedy to trust in your reputation, in your service of the church. It would be a tragedy to trust in the sinner's prayer as the magic words to save you. It would be a tragedy to trust in anything but Jesus Christ for your salvation when you get to the throne God says why should I let you in what would you appeal to there oh God I got baptized I prayed this prayer walked an aisle I I did all these things I did all these things to you and what you would hear would be I never knew you but if you come to the gates of heaven and you say, I'm here because of Christ's devotion to the Father's will. The only reason that I'm here is because Christ bought my ticket in and he brought me thus far. If you get to it and you say, I am only here because Christ gave the most generous gift of his life for me. If you were to get there and you were to say, and I am only here because Christ now intercedes on my behalf, he is the introduction to you, then you would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the rest, the joy of your master. We plead Christ. We plead Christ, not our own good deeds. And it would be a tragedy to miss that. It would be a tragedy here So friend, I ask again, are you trusting in anything but Christ for your salvation? How do you answer that? Are you pleading, are you trusting in something that you have done to save you or something that Christ has done to save you? Don't get this wrong, don't get this wrong. Because you know what, here in our passage, God is gonna do just that for Cornelius. He's gonna do just that for Cornelius. He's gonna take these admirable qualities, things that we should be devoted to as fully devoted followers of Christ Jesus. But what happens next in verse nine on in our chapter, in Acts chapter 10, is not just significant for Cornelius. Yes, his eternity is about to change, but it is significant for you and I as well because it opens up the doors of salvation for all who were non-Jewish at the time, just as significant as Pentecost. Here, God is going to use Cornelius as an instigator. He's gonna use Cornelius as an instigator. Not only did he invest his time, but he's going to use him as an instigator. You know what that word means? 
Do you know that what, what a person who instigate things are? Did you have that sibling, that little brother or big brother? Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. A friend now, a coworker, it's like, don't worry, just yeah, go ahead. Come on, let's go, let's let's do it. What, what do we have to fear? Come on. You know that instigator, that person that's always up to like some shenanigans, pushing the limits, leading the way. Cornelius is going to be one of these men as God instigates his salvation. See, God uses the consistent prayers of his ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And his extraordinary purpose in this chapter was now to bring salvation to the Gentile world in full force. Now let me be clear about something. It has always been available. You see, even in the Old Testament, even as you read through the Old Testament laws, there are provisions for those that were sojourning and those aliens and strangers that were among you to get in on the purposes and the grace that God was offering there. It was always available, even when the focus was on Israel. But now, now in this era, there's a focus, a focus that was turned to the ends of the earth, and it is an audacious, an audacious shift in direction. And so what I want to do, pick it back up in verse 9. Let's work our way through the rest of this story. I want to read it with you. I'm going to offer some comments as we just work our way through this, as we see Cornelius, the hands of God, instigating this new era in salvation history. Pick it up in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Remember how we're reading the Bible and we're putting P's in our margin? There's a, a point. Here's Peter, disciplined prayer. We know Peter. He's a leader in the church. He's a preacher. He's a disciple of Christ, leader in the Jerusalem church. He was at the sixth hour, which is noon, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. My, like most noon hours of my day. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And every hunter and meat eater said, Amen, right? But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at, uh, up at once to heaven. Why did it happen three times? It was to prove that this was from the Lord, that this wasn't just like a rumbling stomach giving him a vision of, you know, a steak. This was a thing from the Lord. And while we, I just want to stop here and just talk about visions and things just real briefly. Like, is this a normative experience that God's people should be looking for, like visions and dreams and things? No, it's not. It's a unique thing. This is a unique situation, a transition in salvation history, and it's unique, and that's why it's recorded in the scriptures. Much of the book of Acts is just that. It's a unique time in salvation history as God is instituting a good new gospel work, and so things like this happen. Now, can God show up in visions and dreams? Yes, no doubt. But this is not a normative experience that you and I should be looking for as we are seeking God's direction. Got it? See, he wasn't even looking for this. He was just praying, and God comes to him in this vision. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, do you think he would be perplexed having something like this? As to what the vision that he had, had had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, 
Remember those guys Cornelius had sent out his attendants, those devout soldiers, to go seek out Simon Peter? And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. Peter's a man of hospitality. Look, he invites them in. They even stay the night because, look, the next day he rose and they went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. And so Joppa's about 30 miles away. So they have a journey, Joppa to Caesarea. And the following day they entered Caesarea. It's about how long it would take to walk that far. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Let's pause there again. That's, this is very instructive. We don't worship men, do we? Even so-called saints, even the great things that Peter has done, but this is, should be very instructive to us not to worship mere men. Who do we worship, beloved? Christ. We worship Christ. And none of his followers. But here, we can't fault Cornelius too much. He's a Roman, you know, they worship these demigods and others. Verse 27, as they talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying, there's another prayer, put a P, at the house, the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. See, they are eager to hear God's word. They are eager and expectant. This is how we listen to sermons. We come because we want to hear from the Lord through his word. They're eager for this. And so God is preparing the way. Remember what's about to happen? Here, Peter's going to preach this crazy sermon. It's real short, but it's massive in its impact. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Stop right there. Stop right there. Underline those words. Those are some of the most significant words in human history, that God does not show partiality. And this is a massive thing at that time. Romans uh, 2 talks about this same thing, that God is impartial, that salvation is both for the Jew and for the Gentile. Gentiles being every non-Jewish person in the world. And that the gospel is for everyone. See, beloved, you and I are here because God is an impartial God. You and I are saved. Christ's atoning work has been credited to us because God is impartial. And because we serve an impartial God, shame on us for being impartial to anybody based on what they look like, where they've come from, how big their bank account is, where what type of job that they have. 
Father God is impartial, therefore we are too. And he preaches this, and this is revolutionary for those days. You mean this is not just a Jewish religion? It is not. But verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Amen. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Through his name. That is a powerful message. There is the gospel. And what do you think happens as they hear about it? What does verse 44 say? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit interrupted the message. Interrupted, and they fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised, that's Jewish believers who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You have to see the barb in that, even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues. There's many people who did not necessarily speak Aramaic that Peter would have been preaching in. Might have spoke Greek or other languages and now they are hearing the gospel supernaturally in their own tongue and they're extolling God. And then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Yeah, no kidding these kind of things happen? Do you think they want it to stop? No, they don't. Beloved, if you've put your faith in Christ and you've not publicly professed it through baptism, we need, well, let's, let's talk. Let's do it. Let's, let's tell your church body of the good work that God has done in your life to save your soul. But see, Cornelius, here's two ordinary Joes. Don't overlook what is happening in this passage that I've just read. The doors to the end of the earth have been burst open by the winds of the Holy Spirit. And God's people, his messengers of the gospel have been pouring through it ever since. And under the sovereign purposes of God, the catalyst was the consistent prayers of just two ordinary Joes. Cornelius, a soldier, and Peter, a fisherman. And now a massive thing is happening. Two men who knew how to invest, who were unafraid to attempt extraordinary endeavors for the Lord. You know, we've been talking about a fresh encounter and our prayer life this month as we kick off 2019. And I wonder, has he given you any special burdens to pray for this year? You know, those faith-filled desires, those changes, those requests that are burning within you that you want to see God come through and they would be impossible to happen apart from the hand of the Lord. You know, several years ago in the marketplace, we called these things every year as we began, we called them BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. You ever had those? Does your business still do it or is that just like something that we did? Those kind of like went by. But the idea was to let's shoot high 
What are those things that we are after that are, are, are seemingly impossible, audacious to reach? But I wonder if God has given you a big, hairy, audacious prayer for 2019. Has he done that? Something massive to pray for. Somebody that you've been praying that is so unlikely to come to Christ. A, a financial situation, a physical thing that unless God comes through, it ain't gonna happen. But is there something to consistently plead with the Lord for in 2019 that you need to pound on the doors of heaven for this year consistently, regularly? Write it down. Is there something that comes to mind right now? Write it down. Where do you need God to come through? What is this audacious prayer? Something that is massive. See, the gospel coming to the Gentiles and being uh, spread to the ends of the earth was an audacious endeavor. And now thousands of years later, we see it happening. We are the fruit, the product of this shift, of this change. Will your prayer bring God glory? Are you willing to wait for it? Are you willing to persevere through it? Are you willing to invest in it? We're gonna pray for them in just a minute now. Remember, beloved, remember as we wrap this up here, remember our sovereign Lord has chosen to do his transforming work through the consistent, expected, dependent, faith-filled prayers of his people, and he invites us in through the joy of obedience. He invites us into the joy of doing his will, to the joy of being in his presence. And for us who know the grace of Christ, the comfort of the Spirit, the kindness and goodness of the Father, how could we not draw near to him in prayer, investing all that we have, investing all that he's entrusted to us to the eternal reward of knowing Christ Jesus? That's why we live. That's why we live. How are we using our time? What are the things that we're praying for. And so I want to just now invite our worship team up. We're going to close in a song. We're going to close by exalting Christ over all. And so as we do it, why don't we just spend some time in personal prayer, praying for your, um, your audacious prayer. I'll lead us in it as we pray. I'll give you some, uh, a few prompts to, to pray for. And let me just say this, we're gonna sing a song and then after our service, I'll come back up here and close. But if you need somebody to pray with you, if there is something weighty and heavy, something audacious, something that you want to share and you want somebody to carry the burden in prayer with you, then I'll be up here, my wife, uh, our small group leaders, um, we'll, we'll have them just kind of be available if you want to, to come and pray uh, with somebody just right up here at the close of the service. And so let's pray now and close.